about to reconcile, wreck and wreck and wreck We about to reconcile, bitch. We about to We about to reconcile, we about to reconcile, we about to reconcile, we about to Welcome once again, coming straight from the streets of Fort Worth. We are now in the zone known as Reconcile This. I am Dr. Frederick Gooding Jr., AKA Dr. G, accompanied with the marvelous Mel Lewis and the magnificent Mr. Marcellus Perkins. Dr. G, how you doing? Well, I am super fantastic, my brother. Thank you indeed for asking. And you know why I'm feeling super fantastic, my brother. Not only did the Eagles make the playoffs, hello. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? That is so insulting. Why would you ask me, really? Like, you're incredulous. Like, you can't believe what I just said. I had to think about it because I was like, did I watch him play last night? I couldn't remember if I watched him play or not, but um, that's 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 still that's still a good sign, though. That's still a good sign. So my response is WTF. All we're doing is rolling with the facts. With the facts. WTF. <laughs> rolling with the facts. It's a fact. It's a fact that happened, and it's yeah. a fact that we have back in the mix yeah. with this Dr. Rhonda Thomas. I am super excited Same. to once again rub elbows with this intellectual titan. In fact, in fact, word on the street goes, Mr. Perkins. Now, again, you can verify, confirm, but the word on the street goes, uh, you were like just minding business somewhere, like, I don't know, like in a cabinet meeting. And like you kind of like mentioned uh, our positive and productive trip to Clemson. Yeah. And, and, and what, what happened? You said just yeah. on your mention of it. What, yeah. what, what happened? Um, did, a, did a small talk about, you know, the trip, uh, mentioned some of the pictures, told him how much I enjoyed the book, and uh, our chancellor, Victor Boschini, uh, ordered 10 copies right after the meeting. Wait, what? Yeah. So, like, is he, like, an Amazon <laughs> distributor? Like, well, I, I mean, that's, like, double digits. Yeah, he got, <laughs> he got, he got, got it He, he got it hot. Yeah, yeah, he ordered 10 copies. I got an email what? from um, the chief of staff to confirm. He's like, yeah, he just ordered 10 copies. And then within a week's time, I want to say he came in my office and said, like, I read the whole book, and wait, I really wait, enjoyed wait, it. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, you, I mean, if you're busy chancellorizing, and you know, and, and it, I, I think that's what you were. That's what you were. No, no, seriously. I, 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 I love think, that word. Like, no, no, for real. I mean, no, we in academia. You know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I would like to think your time would be occupied with um, various matters. So in other words, to make the time to read a book yeah. within a week time, I'm, I don't yeah. know, my brother. What, what do you think about that? Uh, it says a lot. I mean, one, it says a lot about, you know, uh, his, his commitment to this, this conversation and, and learning. I think a lot of times when we have admin and people that have these high tires, high titles, they think they've learned all that they can learn. Um, but he's constantly well, looking to learn. And I think well, enough about him. I think it also says that the book is interesting. No, that, 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 the yeah, second yeah, part. Yeah, yeah. The second part was right. it was such a great book. Oh, okay, right. Okay, right. It was okay. such a great book. Yeah. So, so along those lines, why don't we just go ahead and I mean, you know, you and I be talking to each other. We're gonna need right, right. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in the room. <laughs> In all seriousness, like yeah. mm -hmm. we want to talk about when you're doing monumental work like this, 
how do you keep pace and keep yourself you know, up to speed? I mean, because it sounds as if you're doing a lot. It is a lot. And so, yeah, you know, how, do you, how do you just manage and maintain your own personal from a spiritual and physical standpoint? Mm-hmm. Well, this year I decided to try a few new things because <laughs> the work seems to keep growing and the demands on my time um, increase, you know, so I, I have a planner. Uh, I've used planners before, uh, but this year I made a commitment to use it every single week. So every Saturday night or Sunday, I sit down and plan out the whole week. Um, and then I add all of the, you know, the commitments that I have to my, uh, my ad calendar on my phone. So um, I think one of the things I was just talking with a friend about this morning, and I said, one of the things I was doing is overbooking myself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people would ask me to do something and then I say, sure. And then I look at my calendar and I'd already have something and I was shifting stuff around and trying to accommodate everybody and rescheduling things. And it just got crazy because I didn't have much time for myself. Mm -hmm. So now, um, you know, I know what's happening in the week. Um, I've also started prioritizing projects. I would be trying to do three or four huge projects simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And now I've scaled that back to really one big project at a time outside of my normal work. Um, so I line them up and schedule them up and leave some flexibility to shift that schedule around. So that was the first big change for me is actually getting a planner and making a commitment to use a planner and to really sit down and think about every week, right? That I'm not going into a week, not knowing what's coming up, uh, not having a plan that I can stick by so I can make sure that time for myself is scheduled uh, into each day. Mm. Dr. Thomas, one thing that you mentioned, it really stuck with me um, when we came to South Carolina and we were taking a tour of the cemetery and Mm -hmm. I forgot who had asked they said how do you care for yourself and I think I recall you saying early on while doing this work you didn't think you needed self-care it was Mm -hmm. something that you denied yourself of can you talk a little bit to that and why that was kind of your approach to the work early on I mean given the emotional pull that this work has I mean the mental the time commitment to tell or convince yourself that you didn't need self-care Yeah, um, that was a big ambition for me. I don't know if I ever said that out loud to anybody. Mm. We just kind of had that moment when you all were asking me and I was reflecting. And I think I had convinced myself that because so few few people cared about this history Mm. that um, I had to do the work, Um, you know, and if I didn't do it, who was going to do it? And so I thought the price of getting the story out is really um, not taking care of myself, you know, that, that it, it meant that much to me to try and get these stories um, circulating again, to honor the people who had, that had built my university or who had labored on the land as enslaved people or sharecroppers. And I just thought, you know, in comparison to them, you know, I'm not, a, I've never been enslaved. I, I've never been a sharecropper. I've never um, had, you know, to deal with, uh, you know, uh, being a prisoner or, you know, being forced to labor for no pay or low pay. Right. 
Right. And I thought, you know, they went through so much more than I did. Mm -hmm. So the price that I have to pay to get their stories out mm -hmm. seemed to me so much smaller in comparison that I just, I just did it. I just put my nose to the grind and I just did it because I felt like I was walking in their footsteps. You know, I was, I had advantages and opportunities that they didn't. And somehow that was the, it was like a debt I had to pay, right? That I, I get to do all these things that they maybe didn't even dream of. And so for me, it was like, okay, I didn't have to suffer. I can't even compare my life to theirs. And so what am I complaining about? It's, you know, I just need to do the work. I've got to get these stories out. Um, and so I just didn't think to take care of myself mm. uh, or, you know, I didn't think about the price that I was paying. Like what if something happened to me and I got right. sick and I couldn't right. do the work? Uh, that sense of urgency was so strong in those early days hmm. um, that I paid a pretty high price for just getting these stories out. I was so committed that I didn't think about the impact it was having on me, frankly. Hmm. Dr. Thomas, to follow up on that idea of the cost to you personally, um, and by the way, for all of our listeners, not to be rude, but we are speaking with uh, Dr. Rhonda Thomas, author of Call My Name Clemson, uh, documenting the Black experience in an American university community. And so as you were taking on this toll, you mentioned something earlier about not wanting to let people down. So how do you reconcile the concept of you being a conscientious, conscientious individual, wanting to be committed to the work and be effective, but yet feeling guilty if, if you're not doing more or, or making it happen. I mean, it sounds as ironically that you're like punishing yourself for the idea that no one's been doing the work before you. And then because there's a dearth and there's a paucity, you step into the space and then all of a sudden you take on all this pressure to make it happen every single minute of every single day to the point where you might be breaking down. And so how, how, do, you, how do you now balance this idea of I want to be committed, but not feeling guilty if you're not doing everything all the time. Um, I think I got to the point where I realized that I was making an impact, but I shouldn't take the responsibility that my university has hmm. to do this work. Hmm. So I had to realize that I had a role as a sixth generation South Carolinian uh, who has, you know, a tremendous personal connection to this work. I also th think was a driving force, right? So I'm not just doing this work. I'm a black woman. I'm a sixth generation South Carolinian. I'm working on a plantation on a university that was built on a plantation. So there's, there's all of these, these, these driving factors. Um, but then all of a sudden it's like, okay, um, I'm one faculty member um, trying to take on a task that my university really should be um, taking on, right? That there should be resources at the university. There should be a whole team of people doing this. And so I thought, what can I do as an individual, as one person with um, students? Sometimes I have a part-time postdoc this year, but what realistically can I do um, to make a difference, right? Um, and so I started reaching out more to community partners, um, I started reaching out more to um, some of my colleagues who are on projects with me. Mm. And so it was scaling it back down to size so that I still have an impact, 
but it was a realistic impact, right? It's, it's a faculty size impact and not an institution size impact. Hmm. Dr. Thomas, I, I would, I wanted to know um, in those earlier times when you're with your nose to the ground and you're trying to get these stories up and out, the feeling of discouragement, I mean, if, if not not getting the support that you felt that you needed or getting some of the pushback, um, knowing that you're talking about um, very deep, dark histories uh, towards the university that for many years have decided to not talk about these things. Can you talk a little bit about the feeling of discouragement? And I think for our listeners who are in this field of um, academia, when they want to do resource, research, but are afraid of you know, will I get the support? Uh, will, will my institution back me? Will my chairperson back me? How do I, even though in, in my heart of hearts, I know that what I'm doing is the right thing to do, but I don't have the support. So I get a little discouraged. Can you talk a little bit about how to overcome that feeling for you? I think for me, yeah. Overcoming the sense of just frustration for mm -hmm. me. I'm not sure I was ever discouraged. I was more frustrated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think um, the turning point for me, and I talk about it in my book, is when I was um, first going through the documents about the mostly Black convict laborers who built Clemson between 1890 and 1915. And I came across 13-year-old Wade Foster. Right, right. And, you know, he's from Spartanburg. I was born in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And I thought about that child, you know, who was convicted of stealing uh, some clothing and a toy drum and a pillowcase and sent to the state penitentiary for six mm -hmm. months, mm -hmm. um, about $6 worth of clothes, about $166 in current currency. Mm -hmm. And I thought about Wade and somehow or another, that story lit a fire in me mm -hmm. that has not been quenched. Mm -hmm. So when I get a little frustrated, when I get a little discouraged, then there may be moments of discouragement I think about Wade, uh, and I think about the fact that that boy, born in a town uh, where I would later be born, um, in a very different, under very different circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought about Wade's story sitting in that that archive for almost a century, mm. um, with you know my university talking about convicts building Clemson, and I'm saying, did we know that there were boys? Uh, teenagers, college age students, most of them were under the age of 25. Yeah. And I think um, in those moments when, when things get a little rough, and they do, you're going to get discouraged. Um, I think about Wade. Um, I think about a little baby on a deed who was sold with the Fort Hill Plantation. Her name is Katie. She was listed as being zero years old. Mm. I think about that little baby, not even knowing uh, what was happening. So it's like the things that people say, oh, you know, it's so painful, it's so discouraging. Um, those are the, the, the stories of people that mm. actually energize me, you mm. know, because I, I, I feel so honored um, to have the opportunity to tell the stories of people who didn't have a chance to tell their stories. And so when I find a new story or when I can pull together details from these documents and tell a new story, um, that compensates for the discouragement, you know, that keep, that keeps me going. You know, I, I had some colleagues ask me recently why I'm still doing this project after all these years. And I mm -hmm. said, cause I'm still 
finding names. I'm still calling names. We have not told all the stories. So mm -hmm. until every name is documented and every story is told, um, there's just something within me that will not give up because mm -hmm. there are more stories to tell. There are more people uh, whose humanity needs to be affirmed. You know, there are more African-Americans who made it possible for Clemson to be the university that it is today. And so I just, you know, I just got to keep going. Just got to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And so speaking of going, um, how long are your days compared to say when you first started? I mean, just literally mechanically walking through, like how, how long are you on the clock? I mean, how, how are you literally pacing yourself on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis? So a, a really great thing happened, although I didn't have a lot of uh, support when I, I first started. And um, actually my, my department chair, um, interestingly enough, said something like, don't let this project define you. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you're a literary scholar. Um, this is a public history project. Um, and so when I started, I, I thought I would just find the names of some enslaved people and, and document their stories and I would be done. And I kept finding more and more African-Americans as I dug deeper into Clemson history. So now the number is in the thousands of people wow. right? uh, from starting with just what I thought would be a few hundred and we keep finding more. So my dean in the College of Architecture, Arts and Humanities, I went to him recently and I said, you know, uh, one of the challenges with doing this work is funding. I don't have a funding stream. You know, I'm not in the STEM field where I can go and get a multi-million dollar grant uh, to fund this project. Um, our grants are small in the humanities and I just need some operating funds. Mm -hmm. So um, he asked me how much I needed and I told him and I thought I was just gonna get the money for a year, but he gave me um, a three year, um, you know, kind of annual funds that call my name will receive. And so he and I started talking and I'm like, he's like, well, how long do you think this will last? And we're like, at least a decade, you know, I can do what I need to do. I can get the website up. I can set up a system where uh, the work could continue without me, or maybe by that time, the university will have completely incorporated uh, this work into its, you know, its its history department. I don't know. Um, so at this point, we're we're kind of looking at what can I accomplish in a decade. Um, where will I be? So I'm starting to kind of plan out for ten years to say, all right, can I pace myself now that I know I don't have to worry about basic funding? Um, now that I know I can probably hire students, they're also looking into getting me a graduate research assistant who'll be working with me every year. So now that I have resources and I don't have to worry about survival, mm -hmm. I can actually start planning. Mm. I, right. I, you know, I can, I can plan what common name is going to look like in the next three years. Um, and then I can plan for five years. I can plan for 10 years. This is the first time I've been able to do that. Mm. So the thing that happened that I wasn't expecting is that the, you know, the stress of just running a project like this, when you're running on a street, a shoestring disappeared. Just real quickly, this is important. Even though you have other people working with you, we say stress, like what, what does that look like? Like, like, you know, what, what is it that you're going through, even mm -hmm. though you have other people working with you? So even if you have a team, you know, this work um, is challenging. 
right? Mm. Even though I'm honored to do it, um, spending like a day in the archive reading convict records, um, right? And I'm just reading these records of these, you know, from a 12-year-old to a 67-year-old, and I'm reading how these, these men and boys, mostly convicted of theft, uh, are stealing food and clothes. Um, I'm reading how they don't have representation in the court, right? They're going before the judge and there's no lawyer. Uh, I'm reading how, you know, they're getting arrested at their homes and taken to jail and sitting in jail into their court case, right? Reading that, sometimes I'm in the archive like all week and I'm reading all day long from like nine o'clock in the morning until five o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm reading all of these court cases, despite the fact that that is honorable work, it's also heavy work. You know, it's heavy work to look at, you know, the, the concrete evidence of what happened to black folks uh, back during the Jim Crow era or the antebellum period or reconstruction and see the hardships and the horror that they experience. Mm -hmm. um, you can't separate that out, right? That doesn't go away, even when right. you're committed to the work, um, it still is emotionally taxing. Uh, it is still, um, emotionally demanding. Uh, I still have tears. You know, I still have days where, um, you know, sometimes when I'm driving home, it's just like, I'm just like, all right, I'm going to put some nice music on. So by the time <laughs> I get home and talk to my husband, I'm in a different place. Right. So even though um, I want to do this work and feel called to do this work, uh, it doesn't lessen the the stresses and the emotional toil that mm. the work will take on you. Yeah. Um, that's part of doing the work. Mm. I, I wanted to ask you, I know we're, we're kind of coming up on our time, but <clears throat> what advice would you give you at the start of Call My Name Clemson? Knowing what you know now, experiencing the things you've experienced, um, what advice would you give you and any, any young scholar or young professor who, who wants to do this work, not knowing where it will take you, not knowing how groundbreaking, but you want to do it because you know it's right. You want to do it because you know it's truthful and you know in your heart of hearts that the stories and the things you need to explore need to be talked about. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the best things that has happened to me during this work that wasn't there when I first started is I have a group of girlfriends. I'm mm -hmm. calling my sister friends. Mm -hmm. They have known me since I was about 10 years old. And every Tuesday we talk and we pray together. Mm. And so I think um, I was thinking about that, that this morning, having uh, friends that are really, really close to me, but don't work at Clemson. Mm. Um, so I think you need people within your university and without your university. And what my girlfriends do without my university is that they know me. They know me. Um, they've known me since I was 10 years old, right? We started, we, we met in Atlanta and we, we kind of lost touch for a little while. And then when I moved back to South Carolina, we, we, we renewed our friendships. Mm. And so just having them to talk to, to laugh with, to share with every week, I know if I need someone to talk to, they're there and they listen, mm. even though they're not academics, um, they're my friends. They love me. They care about what I do. They know how much I care about my work. Mm. And so I think having that circle of friends around me outside of my family and outside of my colleagues, but just having those three women uh, who are in my innermost circle, 
um, has been transformative. And so I would tell myself, find you a small circle of friends mm -hmm. who love you, who understand you, uh, who understand the work that you're doing and who will be there with you. Um, I'll give you a quick example of something that they did um, when we were doing the cemetery project um, and we had just found um, you know, over 200 graves. And I had to go to the cemetery and meet the president and the chair of the, the board of trustees and all of these Clemson administrators. And I had just been going every day, every day, right? You're running on adrenaline mm -hmm. and you're just trying to get things done. And I drove to the cemetery that morning and I got there and I couldn't stop crying. Mm. I just, I was just weeping uncontrollably in my car. And I saw the cars coming in. I saw the president come in. I saw the chairman of the board come in. And I'm like, I got to get myself together. And I couldn't stop crying. Mm. And so I started texting my friends. And they immediately were texting me back, calling me, sending me songs, you know, and saying, Ron, you know, you've been doing this work for like the last month and, and holding it in. So it's, it's normal that you have this emotional response. This is heavy work. Right. And just having them like affirm what I was doing, you know, say we're right there with you in spirit. You know, here's some scriptures, here's some songs mm -hmm. to listen to as you get ready to step out and take up that work again. So it was a uh, moment I will never forget, right? So, so, so Doc, a couple of things before we close out. One is that, um, is it possible I, I, could, I could get the number of this group because I, I could use some time <laughs> <laughs> own sometimes. I really could, that sounds powerful. But secondly, yeah. you know, as you meditate that, um, before we uh, we break, what, what, what's, uh, what, what, you know, can you give us a glimpse of, of the bright future for Dr. Thomas? We understand that, uh, the, the reaction was so strong, including our, our chancellor to your book, that uh, you might be doing a little bit more writing. Or can you give us a brief preview as to uh, what was in store? Yeah, so a few projects that we're, um, we're going to do next um, are we're working on a traveling museum exhibit. We got an NEH um, grant, $400,000 grant to create that exhibit. So it will be on display in February of 2023. Congratulations, um, by the way. Congrats. Thank you very much. Um, I'm writing a play. Um, that oh, wow. our performing arts department is helping to develop. So um, we're gonna be doing like a public reading of the play and it will be performed in the fall of 2023. Um, and the, the third big project is that I've been asked to write a book, a second book for University of Georgia Press. It's called um, The Voices of Black Clemson, Silent No More. And um, the book proposal is under review, and I hope it'll be out late next year or early 2024. Well, Dr. Thomas, in many ways, you affirm the concept, and I've asked Mr. Perkins this all the time. Mr. Perkins, what's the reward for hard work? More hard work. Oh, my word. <laughs> well, so God bless you, and thank you for all the work that you're doing. I think it's absolutely amazing to take something academically, and not only for it to be academic, but you also made it activist and you also made it artistic. We yeah. look forward to the play and everything else that comes forward your way, but more importantly, we look forward to you and your circle and your crew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Keeping it nice. Get a crew. And balance. <laughs> if you don't yeah. have a crew, get a That's crew. Right. right. So, so we, we look forward to you and your crew keeping it nice and balanced yeah. as you look for reconciliation in 22. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Rest is part of the work. Rest is part of the work. Absolutely. Thank you. I cannot promise 
what will ultimately happen as a result of our enterprise in studying TC's relationship with slavery, racism, and the Confederacy. But I can pledge to you that we are doing the best we can with what we have. Reconcile, 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 reconcile